Okay, Tom, moving on. Uh, forum user somebody says, Tom, have you ever read the Bhagavad Gita? I always get this wrong. Sorry. The Bhagavad Gita. Uh, your big toe seems to confirm practically everything in most of its teachings, albeit using different metaphors for the same things. This thought leads to my question. Were ancient cultures more enlightened than us? That is to say, was their big toe back then bigger than ours collectively as a race now? If it was, then how did we lose it? What went wrong? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that uh, – I wouldn't make that into cultures, you see. There were – there have always been individuals and sometimes groups of individuals who have had very deep understanding of the nature of reality and who have been very highly evolved individuals. And that's probably been from the very beginning of time that they've had these because the way to discover this is – is you know your own consciousness it's inner space so those people you know when the, when was the buddha active like 2500 years ago you know so he had the same ability to discover and explore his inner space that you have now there's nothing changed there you get there by exploring your own inner space so yes people have figured this out and when they figured it out sometimes they've taught others and and uh, sometimes that's become a group or a movement but seldom has it ever developed into a culture. Typically, it's individuals. Typically, it's not that many individuals who actually get it. Then there's lots of other individuals who, who pretend to get it or get little pieces of it or get uh, you know some of the trappings of it and uh, don't really understand it at a deep level. And sometimes that can get to be at the cultural level. So we've always had these little bubbles of enlightenment uh, all through every time. We have, you know, many of them in our own time right now. There's lots of individuals who get it. Uh, and it's not that we lost it. It's just that it keeps bubbling up. It keeps reappearing. There are people who keep rediscovering it and rediscovering it because the discovery is inside themselves. So it's something that uh, has been discovered and rediscovered by individuals throughout all time. But now we have this situation where we have an Internet and now we have communications. So I suspect that this discovery now has the potential to spread much wider than it did before when it was only some one or two people walking around and talking about what they had learned and, and uh, what, how they discovered the nature of reality and how it all makes sense and so on. And then maybe you had 10 or 20 people doing that, but never very many who really get it because it's not that easy to get. It's not that easy to, to be it. It is pretty easy eventually to learn how to act it. To act that way is not so hard. To be that way is much more difficult. So it's not like we had it in cultures and almost everybody, you know, 2,500 years ago was enlightened. It's not like that. There were a few people then wandering around who were enlightened, and maybe there was even a few hundred of them. And then there was probably another thousand of them who got some of it. And then there was probably 10,000 of them who were acting, uh, you know, out parts of it. And that's typically the way it goes. And today we have a similar sort of thing. Well, we have a lot more people now, so we probably have a lot more bubbles of enlightenment now. I don't think that uh, we're any worse off than we were then. We didn't lose it. It's just spread out in little groups all over the place. Some of them have just a piece of it. Most of them have just a piece of it, not the whole thing. But again, the Internet will help us bring all those pieces together and make sense of a bigger picture of a whole that's not there now. 
So it's not like we were all a lot smarter, but there were some people 5,000 years ago that were a lot more grown up than a lot of people today. True. But don't see it in the, in the sense of, uh, you know, we were all bright and now we're all stupid. It's not like that. Or we were all grown up and now we're not. Um, we have thousands and thousands of people alive today who understand the bigger picture. But we also have seven and a half billion people on the planet. So there are lots of people who understand. But it's, it's, uh, it's beginning to coalesce more and more into a, a movement that's not just restricted to a local region like it always has been before when communications mean you walked and then later communications mean you rode a horse. You know, news didn't spread very fast that way. So now it's different. I'm hoping for great things to come out of this Internet technology that will help spread ideas widely and quickly. So one of the things we've been we've been needing for a long time. But anyway, it, it's always been there and it's still there today among lots of people. And generally, the general person who never did uh, go inside themselves and discover any of this on their own, you know, they're probably, uh, you know, the, the 99%, it's still the 99%. That just is more people these days. But we're probably not any less enlightened than we were then. It's just, it uh, seems that way. We have lots of people that are, have a very low quality of consciousness because this environment we're in now tends to stir up our fears. Even in the last 50 years, that's true. 50 years, people today are a lot more frightened and have a lot more fear than they did just 50 years ago. So it's, uh, you think that means we're going backwards, but at the same time, there's a whole lot more people who also have a bigger picture now than they did 50 years ago. So both sides are growing somewhere that's going to meet in the middle with a, with a clash that will make a big difference. It'll be like a, a tipping point and all of that hopefully will happen in the next couple of decades. All right. Next question is from someone who was at the Frankfurt event. I'm not going to uh, mention their name, but they are a forum user. They say, hi, Tom. Thanks for a great Frankfurt event. Uh, at the event, I asked you a question about loneliness. I don't know if you remember, and I got three answers from you. One, that I use my friendships to confirm me and my existence. Two, that a good thing would be for me to find a wife who also wants to grow towards love so that I have someone to walk the path with. And three, that growing up is indeed a lonely path. You also asked me if I was satisfied with your answer, and even though I actually wasn't, I politely said yes. Well, as the fear of loneliness is something that has been bothering me for years, I was really actually hoping to get some advice on how to progress from there. How do I make peace with the perceived threat of my loneliness? By making more friends? By constantly planning for social interactions? By smiling more at people and making them like me? All in all, I'm hoping to get more practical advice on how to face this fear and hopefully conquer it sometime in this lifetime. Okay. A personal fear needs a personal approach. And the only way to, to um, overcome a fear is with courage. So if you're feeling lonely and that loneliness is a problem, I mean, you may feel lonely and the loneliness is not a problem. If loneliness is just the way you feel because you, let's say, are an introvert and you prefer to be alone, uh, alone is okay with you. I mean, many, I shouldn't say many, but some people, you know, go live as hermits. They like being alone. 
it's uh, that's an advantage. They don't need a lot of social interaction. So if it's just not a problem, then I'd say, you know, you don't have a problem to solve. Just be lonely if that's the way you wish to be. But if you're lonely and don't want to be lonely, if it's a problem for you, then you need to understand what's the problem. You are creating this situation. This loneliness is not being imposed on you. It's you. It's the choices you're making. And you have to go inside and find out what choices are you making that creates this situation. And then have the courage to go beyond those choices. Make different choices. You know, and those choices may be to smile at people or you know, to go to social events or whatever, make more friends. That may be a choice. But if you continue to reject those, like, okay, you go and you make a bunch of friends, but then two weeks afterwards, you know, you never see any of them again. Well, why was that? Why do you, you know, like make an attempt, but then throw away all the, you know, the, the, the proceeds of that attempt? Well, there's some reason for that in you. Some reason that you make the choices you make. Some reason that you don't go to a social event. Some reason that if you do, that you don't maintain those relationships. You just let them all go. There's a reason for all those choices. And you probably can't change the choices until you understand why you're making the choices you're making. So you're going to have to dig deep into yourself, and you maybe can best do that in a meditation state and ask yourself, you know, why do you make these choices? Why is it that the things you choose to do always leave you feeling lonely and you don't like the lonely feeling? But somehow maybe you actually need that lonely feeling because of a fear that you have. Here's a strategy that most people play when they have fear. The strategy is, I can't lose if I don't play. That's a very common strategy that people deal with their fear. Okay, now I don't know that any of this is your case, because everybody is different. But there's often a case of, I can't lose if I don't play. So if you think that social interaction is likely to turn out badly, or that people won't like you, or that there's, you have maybe a, a lack of self-esteem that makes it hard for you to go meet people, or a, a lack of self-worth, uh, self then one of the, that strategy says, well, then just don't go around people. That way, they can't reject you. That way, they can't you know, push you away because they find you inadequate. And you'd only feel that if you inside actually feel inadequate, you see. Then you kind of assume that people will also find you that way and will push you away. So then this, the strategy for dealing with that fear. Now, this is not intellectual. This is all down at the being level. This is, would be in your subconscious. You're, you assess that and you come up with the strategy from the subconscious is, well, then I just won't play. And that way I can't lose. I can't be rejected. I can't be found wanting. I can't be found not likable. I can't be found to not be a good conversationalist or not be interesting because I just won't get into that kind of social situation. You see? So that's a strategy. Now, again, I don't know that that's yours. Everybody's an individual, but often we have strategies to deal with our fears. And if this loneliness just doesn't seem to go away, you need to look and see why you're making the choices you're making. Are you making choices that that end up in loneliness because of some fear that's that's driving that. Like I'm afraid to try because I don't want to fail. If I failed, if I tried to be friendly with somebody and they rejected me, 
I'd be so hurt and so devastated that I won't try. You see, that's the I can't fail if I don't, you know, I can't fail if I don't play. Can't lose if I don't play. So whether that's your problem or not, I don't know. But think about that and maybe other strategies that you might be using that you end up lonely. Um, you know, it's not likely that you're just lonely because you know, it has nothing to do with the choices you make. There's always people around. There's people at work. There's people in your neighborhood. You know, there's people at whatever organizations you connect with. And if you don't connect with any organizations, well, there's a reason why you don't connect with any organizations, that you stay home all the time. Find those reasons and deal with them if loneliness is a problem. If it's not a problem, then, you know, get used to it, accept it, and just kind of go on. Some people who are particularly extremely introverted like loneliness. That's a good state for them. They don't want to interact with people. So without knowing a whole lot more about you and your particular choices that you make, I can't really tell you much specific in the way of advice. But I can say that it sounds like you need to find the answer to that in your own introspection about why you make the choices you make and why is it that you're lonely. Not that the environment has forced you to be lonely against your will, but the choices that you make are the reasons that you end up being lonely. And why do you make those choices? And do you really want to make different choices or not? About all I can come up with. I can't be very specific unless I know the specifics of the situation. I'm sure they'll probably um, either put a follow-up question or they can email me if they want a little bit more clarification and do it personally away from the fireside chat. Tom, that's not a problem. Uh, the next one is from Eric V. Uh, Tom, there are some spiritual teachers who talk about a level of spiritual awakening which is very rarely realized and which is even beyond the state of universal consciousness or oneness with all of creation. They call this state the absolute or pure potential. They describe awakening to the absolute as the final step in spiritual awakening. The first step is to overcome the illusion that you are a body, mind, or person and awaken to universal consciousness, the universal I am, which is oneness with all of creation. The final step then is to overcome even the illusion of the I am in order to realize the absolute. What remains cannot be comprehended by consciousness, cannot either be described by any means, nor can it be bound or touched by anything that exists. Consciousness, and therefore all creation, arises from the absolute. Have you realized or experienced this state beyond consciousness that these spiritual teachers talk about? And does MBT even take this into account? Oh, right. Um, hard to answer those last two questions directly because I'm not so sure that this absolute exists. I suspect strongly that it is uh, something else besides what's advertised. Okay. Um, and I find a, a little problem with the fact that the absolute, um, let's see, cannot be cannot ever be described by any means, nor can it be bound or touched by anything that exists, cannot be comprehended by consciousness. Yet, it's, um, have you realized or experienced this state beyond consciousness that these spiritual teachers talk about? Well, it's really hard to talk about something that cannot be comprehended by consciousness, cannot be ever described by any means, and cannot be bound or touched by anything that exists, then it's really hard to talk about it, isn't it? 
that tells me that this is more not of an experiential thing. This is an intellectual thing. This is a thing of, of extrapolation of process. And it runs counter to what this reality is really all about. So in my mind, I would, uh, I would question it. And here's why. Um, let's see where to start with this. I think it comes from from an, an understanding that does not really uh, get the purpose of this reality frame, the purpose of the larger consciousness system. The purpose of our system is to lower its entropy. It's to evolve. It's to grow. And in a social state with other uh, free will entities, it's to become love, cooperation, and caring. That's the purpose of the system. That's what serves the system. That's what the system needs to have happen. That's what keeps the system alive. Otherwise, it de-evolves. Okay? So that's a purpose. Now, many people in spiritual traditions don't see that purpose. They just see it is, and we are in it. And we have to grow toward love. They get a lot of it right. And it's all about our evolution. It's about consciousness. And they get a whole lot of it right. But without that purpose, what happens is you get to this point that you can no longer describe what happens. Okay? Now, if you don't know its purpose, that it's about love, then you don't really know that it's about other. So you have this sense of, okay, you're growing up. You're lowering entropy. You're getting a bigger and bigger picture. You graduate. You go on to the next level, you graduate, and eventually, you know, you get to the end. You're done. You've gotten rid of all your fear and all of your ego, and there's really nothing else for you to do. And now, what do you do next? Okay? And most of the, most of the um, traditions, spiritual traditions and philosophies, at that point, they kind of fizzle a bit. They don't know really what to say. What do you do next? Because see, they're not thinking this as a point is to become love. It's about other. It's about service. It's about caring. You see, then you don't run out of something to do. You've always got something to do. But if it's just about you, if this is really a self-focused thing, I'm going to grow up. I'm going to get rid of my ego. I'm going to get rid of, of my beliefs and I'm going to keep growing up and then I'm out of here. Well, that's a very self-focused philosophy. That's not one about love or caring, and it does not serve the larger conscious system's purpose. So if I'm in one of those philosophies, I have a hard time saying, well, then what's the end game? What do you graduate to? What do you become? You see, do you join the club of people who are, you know, illuminated and, and don't have any more ego? Well, when you don't understand the purpose and how it works, you also don't understand that if you don't keep working on yourself on lowering your entropy, your entropy starts to grow. That ego starts to reinsert itself. You start de-evolving. It takes constant effort to keep ego at bay. Ego just happens. So if you are at this point, it seems like you've hit a useless point. Now, the, the uh, Western religious people solve this point by saying, well, you go to heaven. And then when you're in heaven, everything is nice and wonderful, and you learn to play a harp and sit on cloud. Now, that's just obviously a metaphor for being in heaven and having nothing to do for the rest of eternity other than have a good time. 
that gets to be a little hard for anybody who's you know who thinks too much to see that that is a a desirable place to be you know done is not a desirable place to be that's a horrible place to be is done what what's good place to be is engaged part of the part of the solution helping you know working to just be done yes you know, sit on a rock or sit on a cloud and play your harp and everything's happy is not a place that anybody would really want to be it doesn't work but because they see it in terms of graduation growing up growing up evolving of consciousness well you get to the top there has to be something up there for the top to do well i think in buddhism their solution to this problem was to become one with god to become one with the creator so you and the larger conscious system you kind of melt into the larger conscious system, give up your individual identity, and to become one with the Godhead is the way it's described. You just become a part of the Godhead. All right, well, that works sort of, but not really, because you were created as an individuated unit of consciousness for a purpose. Now you're going to just kind of dissolve back into the Godhead, and if that was the goal of all the individuated unit of consciousness, the conscious system would be right back where it started before it made all the IUOCs to help evolve. You see, it would just be one monolithic thing that everything would have gone back into. Now it's very limited again. It's got one set of choices and one free will, and that doesn't make for a very interesting conversation or a very big learning. That's stilted. That's limited, very limited. So why would the system do that? That doesn't make any sense either. All right, so if that's not a good idea, that we lose our identity and just become one with the Godhead, then what's something else that, that uh, could be? Now, I think this thing that he says is, is, a, uh, is, another, is, a, is the next idea. So, okay, we just are going to extrapolate from what we know. We keep evolving, going up to higher levels, and when we get to this, the final step, okay, after we've become one with everything, once we've become uh, just, you know, the I am, which is oneness with all of creation, the final step then is to overcome the illusion of I am in order, in order to realize the absolute, just a statement. The absolute. So somebody says you have to go one more beyond that because it's really logically doesn't make sense to stop at becoming the Godhead. Then what's the point? We, if the God just started and was everything, then we end up just everything back to God. Then it's just the same way it started. So it's like you, you know, you've kind of regressed rather than progressed. So in this case, you just become the absolute. And we don't say what that means. In fact, we say. What remains cannot be comprehended by consciousness, cannot ever be described by any means, and cannot be bound or touched by anything that exists. So now we've gotten ourselves off the hook for saying what this absolute is and what it does and how it works, right? So we're going to become absolute, and guess what? You don't know anything about that. You can't ever feel it. You can't think about it. It just doesn't. It's totally invisible, and that's what we become. Well, now that's the final solution that nobody can argue with. Yay, team. Right? Now we've... We've come to a good answer to this question about growing up and growing up and what happens and what's the end game. And we've done it with a, with a way that nobody can say, well, but that doesn't make sense because nobody can talk about it except, he says, uh, that these spiritual teachers talk about. It. So somehow they talk about it, even though they can't talk about it 
which means it's an intellectual thing. You see, it's about the talking. It's about the intellect. And it's about their idea that there is this absolute step and that they, you know, that's the last big thing. And I think it's because none of the end games that most of the spiritual traditions have are very satisfactory. The end game always has a problem. It doesn't quite make sense. Who wants to sit on the cloud and play a harp forever? You know, who wants to, you know, go to parties and drink beer forever? Who wants to do anything forever? That's not work. That's not actually changing things, making things better. That's not a part of the solution. See? So I think all of that is probably intellectual nonsense, and it doesn't really exist, but it solves a theological problem for these spiritual teachers. It gives them an end game that can't be argued. They finally have an end game that nobody can look at and say, well, that doesn't make any sense because the melt into the Godhead doesn't really make sense. That's where it started. Why to go back to that? And the, um, you know, you just play a cloud, you know, play a harp on a cloud doesn't make sense. That's kind of the traditional religious view in the West because that's a dead end. That uh, sounds more like hell than heaven. I don't know the two would be any different from each other if there was nothing to do for eternity. I, I don't even like nothing to do for a day. You know, that's a problem. But I can't imagine nothing to do for eternity. That would be a real downer. So what, they, what they're missing is that the system is about lowering entropy. It's about evolving. Evolution is an open-ended process. Evolution is a process fractal. It's a fractal process that never ends. It just builds on itself and builds on itself. The output gets fed back in to the evolution and as input, and out comes a new output. And that just keeps going on, okay? A fractal process. So in this process, you have to lower your entropy. You have to become love. And it's not about you. It's not about you growing up and growing up and growing up and then getting out of the top. You know, I'm graduated and I'm done. That's self-centered. It's about becoming love. It's about caring. It's about other. It's about constantly serving and being helpful and useful. And there will never run out of that need to be helpful and useful because it's an open-ended process. Evolution goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop. As long as there are places to go, it will go. As long as there are things that could be done better, another lower entropy state, it just keeps going on. And we know even from our physical world that you never get to zero entropy. You can approach it, but you just can never get there. And if you don't keep putting energy into it, you start to go away from there. You start backing up and entropy gets higher and higher. You never do maintenance on your house. Eventually, your house will rot and fall in. You never do uh, maintenance on your car. It'll stop working. You have to constantly put energy in to keep structure working. That's just the second law of thermodynamics. It's the nature of entropy. If you don't keep working at being part of the solution, you will become part of the problem. You will de-evolve. You will, your ego will grow. So once you understand the nature of reality as an open-ended system that doesn't have to have an end game, then you can see that we do maintain our individuality in a sense. I mean, we, we're all connected to the larger conscious system, but we're an individual unit of that, a part of it. And we have a job to do 
for as long as it takes. We just keep, there is no end game. The evolution's open-ended. It just keeps changing. And we keep trying to grow up. And this growing up thing is a hard thing to do. It takes a long time. It's not something that, uh, that uh, you know, you can expect to do very quickly. It's changing yourself. Pulling yourself up with the bootstraps, a very hard thing to do. I read a, 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 one of the questions we had on here was, well, you know, we've been trying to grow up here for the last 200,000 years. You know, that's how long humans have been around. And look what we've got. Hardly anything at all. That must not really be the point or we would have done it. No, it takes a long time. In the environments that we create for ourselves, it takes a long time to grow up. And there will always be another state to grow into. That's the name of the game. It's about other, not about self, not about me graduating and being done with it. Because now you need to have a done state where all the done people go. Was that heaven? Well, that doesn't sound very productive. Is that uh, become one with the Godhead? Well, that doesn't sound very productive for the system either. It made you for a purpose. You know, and absorbing you kind of makes it go backwards. Unless it just doesn't need you anymore because you're done, but that just doesn't make any sense. So that's not productive for the system either. So you see, I would say that this idea about the absolute that nobody can talk about, but that the spiritual teachers talk about, is just an intellectual construct to help them get out of the end game problem. And, um, uh, you know, religions and, and uh, other spiritual groups have had an end game problem from the very beginning. Well, there is no end game. End game is self-centered. Love always has somewhere to go, always has something to give, always some way to improve. It's an open-ended system. We may not see what those improvements may be, just like our own evolution. What is a human gonna look like 100,000 years from now or a million years from now? They may not look at all like us. They may be very different because evolution just keeps on chugging. It's not like we're the end product and that's it. Humans, a long time from now, may look back and see us like we look at monkeys. You know, it's hard to say. Evolution keeps on chugging. It's open-ended. So there is no end game. Love is, doesn't end. It's not an end game. It's an opportunity, and the opportunity is never over. So that's what I think about the uh, universal, or I mean the absolute. I think it's an intellectual trick to get out of having a, an end game that can be criticized or that doesn't make sense. I shouldn't say be criticized. I mean, it is illogical. The melting into the Godhead and the sitting on the cloud with a harp are both illogical. This one is not, this one's also, I guess you'd say not logical. It's just a statement. And then another statement's made to make it impossible for you to, you know, have any logical, you know, context about the statement. That's what makes it work. Okay, probably pounded that one to death, but uh, that is, uh, uh, I think, a pretty major big picture point.
I, th I think it is, Tom. I think you spent exactly the right amount of time on that and gave a very good, very straightforward answer, which people should understand. I'm sure it will raise a lot more questions, though. <laughs> All right, next question. Um, no we're talking about the lack of practical advice. We're moving on from that to the lack of practical advice. Uh, Tom, statistically, most people won't find out until they're dead whether or not their true identity is really consciousness shifting between data streams. And therefore, very much of the information you give us becomes something to believe in something for the intellect you have also said that paranormal experience comes by itself when we are ready for it now in my own path i found that when i use courage to do something to face my fears for example asking a woman out on a date even though i'm terrified of rejection or speaking publicly in front of many people in spite of my fear of doing so the chances of me having a paranormal experience increases greatly i seldom hear you give other practical advice other than doing meditation on a regular basis I've heard that even people going into monasteries, meditating for the rest of their lives, will only get small glimpses of the vastness that they really represent. So why don't you, or won't you, give more practical advice more often? <laughs> well, because the practical advice, it comes out as a one-size-fits-all. Right, so here's some advice how to do this. Well, that advice may work for, you know, 3% or 4% of the people, and it may not work for the others. It's individual. Growing up is an individual thing, and the way you do that is very personal for you. It has, it's about you and your choices and your fear. It's not, there's not a prescription available. See, if there were a prescription available, we'd all be a lot better at it. All we'd have to do is, you know, these 10 easy steps to enlightenment, you know, these 10 easy steps to uh, growing up and getting rid of fear. It's not like that. You have to do it. You have to have a, a, the will to do it. You have to have the tenacity to do it. And then you have to have the courage to do it. But the process you go through and the way you do it is going to be uniquely yours. So there is no prescription is why I don't give one. If I did give a prescription, it may fit a few people here and there, and they'd all thank me very much. But there'd be a whole bunch of other people who would try it and nothing would happen. And now I've just made it harder for them because they're beginning, they then have the belief that, well, there's you know, no way I can do this. So I don't try to you know, give prescriptions to people. I'm not a counselor. And uh, I let people go on their own path in their own way because there really no, is no other way. Mostly when people you know, need counseling, to grow up, the counseling becomes something you do instead of growing up. We tend to get connected to that counseling and okay, we're working on it. I mean, we're in counseling, right? We're working on it. And that becomes our, really an excuse for not actually doing it. We do it intellectually. We follow the steps intellectually, but we don't actually change ourselves. We just wanna think about it and think about it in different ways and think about it in different contexts. And we keep thinking about it, but not doing anything about it, because that's personal and takes the will and the courage, and it's hard to do. People will do it when they're ready and not before. So I don't know that there is a prescription that anybody could give about what do you need to do to grow up? Well, that depends on you. How many barriers do you have? What are the nature of your fears? Why haven't you grown up already? Why isn't this easy for you? And everybody would answer those questions differently. It's hard for everybody for their own 
specific different reasons. Everybody lives in their own reality. So there is no bad answer as to what to do. I just give very general answers like meditation will help you get in touch with yourself. That's about all it's good for. It'll help you get in touch with your own consciousness. It'll help you get out of the way so that your your intellect and your ego doesn't automatically jump in and censor everything that comes through you know, your mind. It'll help you get in a state where you can listen better. That's all. It's no magic thing. Just because you meditate doesn't mean that you're going to grow. Just because you're a monk and have been in a monastery meditating four hours a day for 30 years doesn't mean you've grown up one bit. None of these things will make you grow up. You have to grow up because you want to and you change yourself. And, you know, praying day and night and living in a monastery, it's just, you can just act that. It doesn't have to change you. And yes, many people in uh, in in uh, spiritual uh, practices will spend many, many years, decades and decades. And most of that time is spent chasing their own tail. Because the hard work is to get down and change yourself. Make yourself different than you used to be. It's not about learning something new or learning a new technique. So I can tell you all sorts of things to do and techniques, and it won't help a bit. If you, you know, you're having trouble, uh, you know, with this thing, then you could go get in a monastery. Spend ten next ten years in a monastery, and I would predict that it won't help a bit. You'll come out the other side, about the same way that you went in not going to change you it's change has to happen from the inside out it won't happen from the outside in so it doesn't happen because of prescriptions it doesn't happen because of do these practices it doesn't happen because you become a monk it happens from the inside out and it has takes courage and it takes a willingness to be honest with yourself and to grab hold of that fear and face it and get rid of it personal so, no, no, uh, no prescription. I just wanted to um, quickly share something to Tom, because we have a practical application in my big theory of everything. And I noticed that people really gravitate towards wanting a prescription. You do share a lot of practical kind of tips on Avita's channel, Avita Oshil. And there was this one particular one. It was about letting go of fear. And you had it. She broke it down into five parts. And everybody was voraciously like writing down the five parts, the five steps to letting go of fear. We're like, oh, five steps to reduce the entropy. This is perfect. Um, and I found that 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 really it does it helps people. Um, even though it's at the intellect, at least now they have a starting point. They have something that's tangible that they can work with. Um, so I do. I really appreciate the practical tips that you do share. And Avita and um, Lori Houston, her channel as well. There's a lot of practical. Yeah. Yeah, both of those. Uh, Evita O'Shell, you can look her up on the internet, and uh, Lori Houston. Um, Vita's now stopped doing those kinds of interviews. I think the very last interview she did was one with me, and I've done some with her probably over about five years. So there's a lot of them, but she has them all grouped on her site. And yeah. they, both of those sites, she and Lori, both talk about ways to change. You know, seeing what you have to do and doing it. They're they're kind of they're more of a of a self-help viewpoint than uh others that i talk with so you'll get more of that there but still you can write all those down and you can memorize them and you can go at them but it may or may not help you actually change yourself 
again, you have to do it. And just writing them or watching them isn't going to necessarily make you more ready to change yourself. But if you are ready, those little tidbits can be the thing that pushes you over and actually makes it happen rather than, than not. So they can be very useful. You're right. But I've, I've said these things a lot, a lot of different places and times. So there, you know, I can't think of anything I haven't said that hasn't been said at least a dozen times someplace else. So if you're looking for more prescriptions, then, you know, go look at more things that I've said and what other people say. But I warn you that the prescription by itself isn't going to get you there. Yeah, you need the intent to want to grow up. And is there any way to help somebody develop that intent to want to grow up? Give them a secure environment. Love them and give them a secure environment to where they feel they can try risky things and it'll be okay. Because growing up's a big risk. You're leaving the person you know, the person that somehow figured out how to get along and has been doing okay up to now, you're going to leave them. They'll disappear. Somebody you don't know, somebody new is going to go on then with your life. And that's scary. What if this person crashes and burns? At least the old person, yeah, they weren't too happy and they weren't doing all that well, but they were getting by. They kind of got to the point where, all right, they could get by. They didn't worry about eating or shelter or anything. You know, life was okay. They had friends and relationship. Do they really want to change and be somebody else? And who knows what that somebody else might be or where that might go. See, it's scary changing and becoming somebody else, leaving that old one behind. Frightening for people to take that step, but that's the step you need to take. If you grow up, you change, you become different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes courage. You really have to want to do it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Tom, I'm going to give us one more question um, before we, we, we head on out today. Uh, somebody asks, and that is for me as a somebody, sorry. In our PMR, it seems that vision is the most powerful and pervasive of the five senses we possess, save, of course, for the visually impaired, obviously. In other physical matter realities, does this fact still apply? Additionally, are more than five senses possible in other uh, physical matter realities? And if so, what might additional, such additional senses be like? Hmm. Well, I'm just going back over the many uh, different physical kind of realities I've been in. And, you know, it's hard to tell what somebody else is experiencing because I go there with the idea that vision is a primary is a primary uh, sense. And I interact with that. Um, I think some places uh, the telepathy is a real thing. You know, with us, it's something that's in the non-physical and we don't really relate with it. Other places, I think the telepathic communications are more uh, concrete than they are here. Um, that would be one that would have another another sense, which wouldn't be hearing um, or vision, either one. It would be getting information on another channel, just information. So um, that would be the the one that comes to mind that would be different. Now, some places uh, sound is, uh, you know, is more important. Some places not, but I generally don't find the places that I've been to be very that different. Other, some things are accentuated more than others, but they all basically have the same kind of things that we have as far as senses go. And that just might be me though, because I may just be in a data stream and I get data I get data in my data stream to mimic my senses. 
because that's me. That's what I know how to interpret, you see. So when I get someplace and I get a, 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 a data stream to tell me what's going on, that data stream is in terms of what I hear, see, smell, and feel, right, and taste. That's the data I get in my data stream because that's what makes sense to me and that's what I can process with my experience base. So no matter what relationship or whatever, whatever uh, reality I get into, I'm going to get data in those channels. Otherwise, I don't know how to process it. So that may be the reason why all of them seem to have about the same senses that I do. You know, it may not be that they do. It may just be that I get whatever information they get, but I have to get it through those senses. And if it's something else like telepathy, well, that's easy. I get that anyway. You know, I can hear what they're thinking and saying, and we can do that. That's, a, that's easy. But if there's anything else going on, I probably wouldn't notice because there wouldn't be any way to, to get that information to me. So it's a hard question to answer. But mostly what it seems like to me is that the same kind of sense, sensory perception that we have is common everywhere. And I see that most reality frames are, are still common in the big sense. Now, they may have different things. You know, They may have different kinds of critters and different sorts of structures, and they may be different physically. People may look different physically, but they end up being similar within the big picture. In other words, they're all doing the same thing. They're making choices, and the choices either lower or raise entropy. And a lot of it is the same way. You know, there's still there's still gravity everywhere. You know, things still fall down, and uh, there's there's order and structure everywhere in the realities I've been to. And I think that's because it's really hard to come up with a rule set that produces a reality that is as stable as it has to be to let things like us evolve in it. I mean, how long was this planet in evolution that it ended up with people on it? You know, we start from the, from the bacteria is where it started. And before that, I guess it was just, uh, you know, random cells here and there. And then we ended up with bacteria and then lots of bacteria. And from those bacteria eventually evolved people. Well, that's a lot of time. You need a you need a, a simulation that's stable for what uh, a couple of billion years just before you have planets and stars and things. You know, I mean, a lot of that was before anything could have evolved here. It was mostly just gas, and it was all very hot and high temperature and that sort of thing. So you need a a, a simulation that is very very stable, and I think that's hard to do. It's hard to do and when the system finds just the right constants and just the right rules that produce a stable long-term system. It's not like, oh, we could do that 50 different ways. You know, you can't. You can maybe change a little bit here. You can tweak a little bit there. And, of course, the evolutionary process is different. The environments will be a little different. So what evolves in those environments is going to be different. That'll happen, but the basic underlying structure of how it works, of the rule set defining the nature of the reality, is going to be pretty similar, I believe, because I, I think it's too hard to do, very different than the way we've done it, and still have it work. That's why we have these, um, what's it called, the anthropomorphic uh, principle or something. We have these constants in our cosmology uh, that are 
have to be the way they are. You know, constants like the 15 decimal places. And if you changed even in the tiniest little bit, 10th decimal place, the whole universe would collapse. You know, it wouldn't work. Nothing would, nothing would have congealed like it did. You would never have these possibilities. Why do we have these, this group of very, very finely tuned constants? Because that's what it took to make this place stable. And it probably took the system a thousand, maybe a thousand million tries before it got just that right number in four or five or six different numbers like that. They got just the right constant so that the thing pulled together and worked. So you gain just enough gravitation so that you can make the suns and things coalesce, but not too much that it all pulls together in a watt again. You know, it's a very fine point to where our cosmos can exist. So that's just because they had to twiddle with it out the you know, 10 decimal places tells you that it was a very hard thing to tune. It took great precision. So most places are kind of like that. Another reason is that if you'd done a virtual reality like this, there's probably a lot of work to make that rule set and so on convert, I mean, stay stable. Why wouldn't you just take a copy of that and paste it and start from that. Why would you start over from scratch every time and have to do something totally unique? When you had one that worked, why wouldn't you just copy, paste, paste, paste? Now I've got three more universes like this one, three more virtual reality games, except I'm going to make the rules different in the virtual reality game. We're going to tighten these up and loosen those, and maybe telepathy would be one that, you know, that would be available for everybody on a channel. And so there's a few things that you could change, but for the most part, these different reality frames feel pretty familiar when you get to them. Maybe it's just that's all I can get in my data stream is why it's familiar, but I suspect it's also too hard to make them very different and still make them stable enough to have evolved something like this. That's a lot of stability in a, in a, uh, in a simulation that has to keep reinventing itself through evolution. So, Keith, Thanks, you another um, one? Do you want to do another one? Let's do the last one by Eric. Let's do the last the last okay. one. Did we get all of Eric's? Eric has these I'm delightful big, quickly. big picture questions. I love these big picture questions. <laughs> I think we got them all. I'm just looking through. See if I can, oh, no, here you are. It's, oh, it's a good one. No, you're right. It is a good one. Okay, let's finish off with this then. Um, was there ever nothing? <laughs> In terms of our existence, Tom, there seems to be only two possibilities. Either something has always existed without a beginning, or at some point something has come from nothing. Only one of these two possibilities can be true. So which one is it? And if we cannot know for certain, can we at least determine which one of these two possibilities is more likely to have been the case? Okay, I just found that one and I just opened it up. So, um, well, it would seem from our experience that it's an either-or, okay? Two possibilities. Either something has always existed without a beginning, no beginning, or at some point, something has come from nothing. You see, they seem like those are, it says only one of these two possibilities can be true. Which one is it? Well, I would say that... It's not really an either-or, and this is perhaps a bit of a semantic game on my part, but let's say you can do both. And it kind of the semantics is that we're going to dwindle a little bit with the, 
with the concept of nothing. I'm going to start from the idea that nothing is no thing, no structure. Okay, no, uh, you know, zero or um, let's say, say infinite entropy, if you will, high entropy. There is no structure, no organization. Nothing's there. That will define nothing, nothing there. But there is potential for something. Okay, so when we say either something has always existed, I would say that if you have nothing, you have a potential for existence. Yes, there's nothing there now, but there's a potential that something could be there. So that nothingness comes with its own potential. There is not a potentialless nothing. All right, getting kind of far out on this, right? So think of it in these terms. Think of it as nothing is random bits. Oh, you'll say, but that is something. There's bits, and they're random. That's something. Well, let's define that as nothing because random bits is nothing, no information. Let's say the definition of nothingness depends on information. Without information, okay, there's nothing, no content. But a bunch of random bits or the potential for random bits, let's say, is existing. The potential for information exists. So if we say that the potential for information has always been there, even though at the beginning there was nothing. So in that case, the something has always existed. Yes, potential has always existed. And you say, and it has no beginning. Well, no, that potential doesn't need a beginning because it's not anything at all. So there's nothing to begin. It just is. So that's a little word trickery, I suppose, to get around this problem. But we're, we have to look at this problem from the viewpoint of our own perspective, and it looks like it's an either-or. But if we let the nothing be uh, no thing, then random bits, then at some point, something came from nothing. And yes, the nothing, which was just potential, no thing, at one point, we have something called emergent complexity. And emergent complexity means that if you have potential, eventually, just out of random process, you end up with some structure. Something will just, those random things will just bump around together and they'll form a little structure. A little information will be formed. And sometimes that random structure can be stable. And sometimes that stability can let it grow. Okay, and the this idea you can find a lot written about this idea if you go to the philosophy section of the, I think it's Stanford philosophy. Stanford University has a lot of stuff on the web, and they have a big section on philosophy. And look up cellular automata on Stanford um, philosophy, and you'll find a section where they talk about just what I'm talking about. So you have a potential. It's nothing, but randomly something occurs. That's something out of nothing. And mathematically, we do this. And experimentally, we've done this. I've read on the internet, a fellow had a little uh, contraption that he made, 
there was a little contraption that could pick something up from here, move it to there, and drop it. And he made it such that this contraption um, had a purpose, which was to uh, do something useful. Didn't program it to do that particular thing and, and made it um, so that if he stacked something up in this other spot, that that was defined as useful. And that's all it was. So he had kind of a, of a thing that defined what was useful or not. And other than that, no programming. He just let it go. And it, mostly this, this arm that could grab things just flopped around. It was totally random. It'd flop here, it'd flop there. It would grip at nothing. It just flopped and flopped and flopped. But eventually, it actually got one of the little pieces it was, that was there to move. And it moved it and dropped it. And bing, it got a little plus up for, you know, a little happy face occurred. And eventually, it created its own program, its own algorithm to efficiently go over and grab these things and move them over with no programming. It was never programmed to tell it to do anything other than just do, just move, do things, random motion. So this does happen both mathematically and experimentally that random processes can create structures that persist and that grow and that evolve. And the theory is that such a, such a, uh, uh, an evolution of a uh, emergent, such emergent complexity did evolve. And in that complexity, you had something that was a cellular automata. Cellular automata means it's a, it's a thing with a very small rule set. It's actually, and it's an interactive thing. It can interact with things like itself. It's a very small rule set. And the rule set may be, it's a white square, and if it bumps into a black square, it turns black. And that's its whole rule set. Well, we know mathematically we've shown that cellular automata can evolve. Cellular automata, just like evolution, is a fractal. It's a, fract a process fractal. Now, our mathematics never heard of process fractals. It's something I made up. But it works exactly like a geometric fractal. It's just a process that feeds on itself. It's a simple process. Evolution is a process fractal. That's how evolution produced this amazing world with these amazing bodies that we have and all the amazing stuff that's here that's so complicated and so complex with trillions of moving parts. And how did it do that? It's process fractal. Fractals create amazing complex things because they keep iterating and iterating. And what works stays. See, that's the only rule in evolution. What works stays. What doesn't work goes away isn't survivable. So just a simple little rule like that, and you work a process, you get this process fractal that's, that doesn't have any ending. It's an open-ended thing that keeps on chugging. Well, cellular automata can do that as well. Not only that, it's been shown mathematically that cellular automata can be constructed that represent all the functionality of a general-purpose computer. In other words, they can learn to do logic they can do if-thens. They can do all the basic things that computers do. Okay. So now out of those two ideas, the emergent complexity coming out of nothing, just random process, producing something of structure, structure persists, persists in a way of a cellular automata that can, compute a, that can create a general-purpose computer. Now we see a larger consciousness system, how that can be made out of nothing, as long as that nothing 
is defined as having potential to be something. And I would say the key point here is to say that there is no thing, there is nothing with no potential, that everything has potential. So if we start with a nothing that has potential, and my model of this, my metaphor for this potential is just a, a field of random bits. That's just my metaphor for potential, for this potential, because it fits nicely with the with the you know the uh, computational and computer metaphors that I use. So I'm saying that's my metaphor for that potential, is the random bits. But whatever it is, it's just potential, and that that's how it works. So the something that always existed is potential, and that always exists. There's no way to have something that doesn't have potential. And that potential came, created something out of that nothing, but potential came along to create our cellular automata, which turn into be our reality cells, which turns into be the, the you know, the, the beginnings of our consciousness system. So that would be the idea. So it's not a, that something always existed without a beginning, or at some point something had to come from nothing. Uh, potential existed without a beginning because potential just is. There is no nothingness without potential. Now, I just made that up, but he just made that up too, so we're even on that one. That's an assumption. That's not a fact. That's an assumption, okay? But given that assumption, then all the rest of it falls out very nicely, and the only assumption here is that there is no such thing as nothing without potential, that any nothing has potential to be different, to be more. Anything can change. And in this case, if it were just random bits, we see how it might have changed to be a larger consciousness system, maybe what it grew up to be, how it evolved. So that's what I would say about that. It's not a if or, and... Uh, it's not a, a matter of which one is likely to be the case. See, they're both impossible if we just look at it with a with a uh, a, a human perspective, if you will, from from what we know of being human. That something exists without a beginning doesn't compute, because how can it exist if it didn't have a beginning? So it doesn't make any sense. And if something comes out of nothing, doesn't compute, because if there's nothing, how can something come out of nothing? See, those two things, neither one of them computes at all. So that's the problem we have for beginnings. Any beginning has the same problem. Any beginning that we don't know, any uh, beginning, like uh, where did the first cell come from? So we can do the same problem. Where did the first cell come from? Did it just appear out of nothing and there it was and then it started evolving? Or was it always there from the beginning? Where did the universe come from? Now, if we talk just about our universe, it's an easy problem. We know where it came from. It's computed. And we know how. It was computed by the larger conscious system. So as far as our, our universe goes, that's a simple problem to ask. You know, where did it come from? It, uh, you know, it didn't uh, come out of nothing. It came out of the consciousness system. And it didn't, uh, you know, it didn't pop out of nothing. And the consciousness system was already there. So that's easy. 
most people only ask these questions about our universe, but that's the easy question. If you ask it about the consciousness system, it's the harder question. And then you answer it the way I just did is the best I can do. But we have to start with an assumption. And mine is that there is nothing, nothing. There is, there is no nothing. That sounds like poor English, but uh, anything, there's always potential. And like I say, made that up. That's an assumption. But it solves the problem. Maybe it solves the problem with another problem. We could ask, well, how did the potential come there? But I suspect that's uh, as far back as we're going to get. You never can get back logically to beginnings because they always have this, this problem. You weren't there in the beginning. That's back to the camera can't take a picture of itself. You're not there in the room when you're being born because you're not there yet. Okay, that was an interesting one. Uh, Eric asks big picture questions. I like this guy. I not. I think I've talked to him before. He's been on here, hasn't he? He has, and he was in okay. Germany as well. He was there in, in Frankfurt, yes. Eric V, okay. yes. Um, it's the same thing about the chicken and the egg, isn't it? Yeah, well, the chicken and egg, yeah, which comes first? That's like a logical problem. But there's a, there's a logical solution to that one. They both evolved together. There wasn't a chicken that made okay. an egg or an egg sure. made a chicken. A chicken with the process of reproducing by eggs all evolved together. So the answer to the chicken and egg problem is neither came first. They evolved with each other. All right. Well, thanks, Tom. Oh, okay, we have finally come to the end of this extended director's cut of the 36th MBT Fireside Chat. Uh, even with the extra time, I'm sorry if we didn't get to uh, answer your questions or get around to asking them. Uh, thank you, Tom, as always. Thank you to Oliver for hosting, to Justin for recording, to everyone who joined us and stayed the distance. John, I know it's it's well, the sun must be coming up where you are, so thank you very much for being here. Uh, if you submitted questions at home, please keep them coming in and and out there in the world, thank you for watching. Uh, we will see you next time. So long. Bye. -bye.